Are you reading that? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, nope. I'm Mark Standish, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, where I'm a junior member. We're gathering friends and members of our ICS community here on this podcast to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We hope Critical Faith gives you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS. My name is Andrew Tebbett, and I'm postdoctoral research associate at the Center, and today we're bringing you an episode in our series of conversations about the challenges facing philosophy and Christian faith in the wake of 2020. It's been a tumultuous year, and many of us have been left wondering how to look ahead as we think about the increased visibility of systemic racism, the effects of the Trump presidency, and the ongoing reality of the pandemic. Focusing especially on old and new political questions, this series invites scholars and educators within and outside the ICS community to tell us about what's at the forefront of their mind as they contemplate what's worth saving in a post-2020 world. Today, we're joined by Reverend Dr. Sherry DeNovo, Minister of the Trinity St. Paul Center for Faith, Justice, and the Arts in downtown Toronto. Prior to this role, Reverend DeNovo was member of Provincial Parliament for the Parkdale High Park Riding in Toronto's West End from 2006 to 2017. She's also published work in academic theology, including her book, Querying Evangelism, Growing a Community from the Outside In, which argues for a biblical understanding of evangelism that starts with the divine and moves to the most marginalized in society and offers a vision of the church as gathering to be evangelized by others. Reverend DeNovo has also just recently published a memoir entitled The Queer Evangelist, which, as she describes it, recounts her life as a queer street kid who was involved in drugs, became a Trotskyist, got ordained, ran a business, got elected, passed more LGBTQ2 plus bills into law than anyone in Canadian history, and performed Canada's first legalized same-sex marriage. Given Reverend DeNovo's longtime advocacy for queer and other marginalized groups within and outside the church, we at Critical Faith were eager to hear what she's been reflecting on over the past year. Let's get started. This past year has posed its fair share of challenges. In the midst of a global pandemic, and in light of our increasingly polarized political landscape, we've seen many of our most familiar assumptions and categories questioned. So at Critical Faith, we wanted to take the opportunity to reflect on how the events of the last year 
have affected our ways of thinking and on what our role in society can and should be as political philosophers working in the faith tradition. Today, we're continuing the conversation about faith and political thought in the wake of 2020 with our guest, the Reverend Dr. Sherry DeNovo, Minister of the Trinity St. Paul's Center for Faith, Justice and the Arts in downtown Toronto. Sherry, it's a pleasure to have you join us on the Critical Faith Podcast. Uh, welcome. I'm honored. This will be fun. So as, as an initiative of the, the Center for Philosophy, Religion and Social Ethics here at ICS, this Critical Faith Podcast routinely has its eye on questions about the public face of Christian faith. And in our current series, we've been inviting people to speak directly to the intersection of faith and politics in light of the past year. For much of your life, you've lived and worked at the intersection of faith and politics. I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about yourself and whether you could share with us a few of the key moments in your life that have shaped your work as a, as a minister and an advocate. Sure. Um, well, as you uh, suggested earlier, uh, when we talked before the show began, uh, I, w I grew up on the streets of Toronto. I left home, which is not an unusual story for, for queer kids. I mean, a lot of uh, queer kids leave home early. Um, my home is particularly violent as well. Uh, so early on, I got involved in politics as well. I was raised in a social justice household, an atheist household. Interestingly enough, I always uh, point that out because I didn't have any toxic religious background, which so many of uh, uh, the other queer kids do. Um, skipping ahead uh, through a, a lot, <laughs> I'll say that um, when I gained some degree of notoriety, if you can call it that, was when I performed the first legalized same-sex marriage in Canada, and that was in 2001 in my church then on Roncesvalles. And that church was also noted for a number of uh, things. It was a church that was uh, dying when I, I you know, walked in, in an inner city neighborhood, and there was a great deal and still is of poverty around it. Uh, we started an evening service there that was aimed at those who were street involved, who had mental health or addiction issues or both. And a lot of queer folk, including a lot of trans folk, came into that service. It required of us a whole new way of doing church, um, which uh, we embraced. And uh, that is uh, how the first legalized same-sex marriage came about. Um, because of that notoriety, I was courted by um, our MP at the time, Peggy Nash, uh, in our local New Democratic Party. They were looking for somebody to run in a by-election against a liberal cabinet minister. At that point, Gerard Kennedy was running for leadership of the Liberal Party in Canada. And it took me a while to decide to do that. I decided to do that. And after one of the worst political campaigns, according to John McGrath of CBC, <laughs> I had ever seen in Canadian history, I won. Um, lots of smear happened there and uh, then spent almost 12 years in political office at the legislature. And I, I think one of the themes that I think uh, is particularly important that I hope comes out of my book, The Queer Evangelist, is th this discussion that we always have on the left uh, about reform versus revolution. And I argue in the book, and I think I prove in my life, you can do both, right? Um, that there's a place for both, that it's really important to engage in political process in whatever country you find yourself in. It's really important to change laws. Changing laws saves lives. That's particularly important in the queer world. But it's also important to recognize the limits of capitalism, the limits of the state and of church, by the way, and to uh, play really at both the interstices of both, but also at the edges of both, knowing full well that the huge issues 
you know, the environmental issues and issues of equality for all um, colonialism, imperialism, racism, you name it, will only be solved when we have an alternative to capitalism. Yeah, I know you got into a little bit of this um, in, in what you've just said, but just thinking about your idea about how we can we can do both reform and, and revolution, how changing laws save lives. I'm, I'm, that's really interesting. I'm wondering whether if you can specify some of the main like touch points in, in your work in, in ministry and politics. Um, like as, as I look at your as your bio and look at the at the book, quite clearly, you know, queer advocacy stands out. But I'm wondering if there are specific struggles or achievements that stand out as you reflect on on your work, past or present. Sure. Um, so my doctoral thesis uh, was called Queering Evangelism. Uh, that was my first book, and that was published uh, out of California, UCLA, from their LGBTQ uh, Institute there. And uh, that did, you know, quite well in academic circles, which is to say, you know, there's never any money in writing. Um, but it did win the Lambda in Washington, D.C., which was a moment for spirituality and religion. And in that, I argue, and I've never kind of wavered from this, that we really think about evangelism incorrectly in churches. I mean, when I was in seminary, evangelism equaled marketing. I mean, it, that is not evangelism biblically. I, I don't think that's the theological take on evangelism. That's not the way it works, you know, and it certainly wasn't the way it worked in Jesus' time. So the way it works in Jesus' time is you've got these outsiders, the marginalized, who try to get a message through to religious establishments, in this case, the church, um, usually fail, usually um, are persecuted, but occasionally succeed. And really evangelism works from the outside in. It doesn't start in the church that we who are involved in the church, we're the objects, not the subjects of evangelism. So, you know, we're waiting. We, we say this in our liturgy, you know, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. We're sitting there waiting for someone something to walk in that door that is that's why we gather and um and that's a very different take from what you get out of the huge body of literature for church growth and you know how to get more people how to speak to the next generation all of that stuff that comes out of mainly the united states about church growth i argue is is really just it's just a front for that age-old capitalist uh, activity which is sales and marketing um, and that we really need to start thinking about both church and our messaging, you know, what we do uh, in church and how we do it in a new light. So that that's my kind of theological background. And I learned that the hard way. I learned that through being in churches, being a pastor in churches, both rural and city, and trying everything that didn't work, i.e. marketing, and learning that uh, really, you know, we're doomed if we go that route. And also that it's not about numbers. I mean, Jesus, if you look at the story, you know, was the worst evangelist of all time if it's about numbers. I mean, he took a, a congregation of around four to 5,000 Sermon on the Mount, and he whittled it down to a few women and then died in three years. So there, there's a story of evangelism. It's not about numbers. In fact, it might be the reverse. It might be about shedding numbers, right? As it was in Jesus' day. So, um, so that's the theological backdrop and, and submerging, you know, kind of church and state. And let me be really upfront about it. I'm not a fan of either <laughs> in many ways. Um, I think that they're inherently problematic, but certainly, you know, someone like me who comes from a faith background who never really thought about running for political office. I mean, I was 
I was a, a, a member of the NDP only because it is the Labour Party in Canada, and it's where most unions and unionized folk are. And I think as a socialist, one needs to be there and work with that group of organized labor. So that's my connection with the NDP. But I've always maintained that one should stand outside and be critical. Um, and uh, it's never been more important than it is right now, actually, when the left has, let's face it, failed in North America. I mean, we see electing Biden as a, as a you know, some kind of success, you know, yes, over against Trump, you know, I, I, over against this, you know, right wing uh, crypto fascist, yes. But I mean, in no other context would that be seen as, you know, success. Um, for socialists. So, so again, there's lots of work to do both south and north of the border and around the world on the left. There are lots of good signs that it's happening. Uh, but I think that's where people of faith need to be. I mean, we're called to be there, right? Yeah, thank you. So your, your book, uh, The Queer Evangelist was just published. Um, and based on the description, it seems like it's sort of half memoir, but also half an invitation to readers, whether they're queer or not, to join in the struggle against oppression and oppressive systems. I'm just curious, generally, like what led you to, to write this book and what goals do you have for it now that it's out? I've just been incredibly privileged, honored truly to be alive um, through some decades of profound change. Uh, I've seen um, entire systems shift in my lifetime. Um, so I, there's no room for cynicism for me. I, I absolutely think that revolution is inevitable, but you know, there's work to be done there. And particularly for people of faith, particularly for followers of Jesus, who, um, who was, you know, at heart an insurrectionist of sorts, you know, um, because we can stand outside and have been called to stand outside traditional institutions of resistance in a sense and to call them also to account so um, we stand outside the church we stand outside the state we stand outside these systems and we say let's be critical of them yes we can work with you yes we can work in you know with you and as you but i mean we can never give up um the the greater call which is to follow you know this person, Jesus, and to follow in footsteps that I think are, you know, are a great gift to follow. I mean, church at best, uh, and I'm talking here about church as community, um, church at best is, is a kind of, you know, pie now, not pie in the sky. It's a kind of alternative community. It's a community that that is resistant, that is supportive of its members, and whose only reason for being is to love each other. I mean, you're not going to find that in a, a socialist party you know, necessarily you're not going to find that pretty much anywhere else you know when when a mission statement involves an activity you know so uh, here we have a place from which resistance can grow which should and at its best looks after the folk who find themselves in that place um that learns to love people of difference and and this is where I think, again, we have a message to the left, and that is uh, that we can't be kind of in a circle firing at each other. Like we have to get together uh, and we have to re recognize that, you know, the socialist imperative, if I want to put it that way, um, requires that we speak to people with different opinions from Mars, that we work with people that think very differently from, from us, that we reach across barriers and across aisles in, in a government sense 
to to talk to people because at the end um where the left has failed is is really getting the message out to those that that need to hear it most the oppressed the colonized working class and we've been too much as we are often criticized in our ivory towers in you know uh, set apart and and arguing amongst ourselves in our own echo chamber. So so that's where I'd say you know um, that's what I learned in political life is that I could get a conservative and a liberal to sign on to trans rights as human rights. I'm glad I did because you know now we have a conservative government and that is still the law and they're not about to undo it. Glad I and others, of course, you never do this alone. Huge activists behind me. Um, glad I got them to, you know, move on raising the minimum wage. You know, core kind of socialist value laws like that got changed, right? By reaching across the aisle, by getting other people into the conversation, and this is what we're called to do, right? That's that's I think the great imperative of the left and of the Christian left and of those Christians who see themselves as part of the resistance to empire. I want to ask a question about specifically the idea of evangelism because your book embraces the idea of evangelism which I I find interesting. I find that to be an interesting thing to be associated with a more left-leaning politics as, as you're describing. Um because for some I think and I don't, I don't know if this association would make sense will make sense to you but I think for some the idea of evangelism might conjure up the idea of a kind of Christianity that almost imperialistically uh, you know, seeks to create converts in a way that might actually perpetuate rather than than uh, dismantle oppressive systems. So I'm wondering if you if you can tell us a bit more about what what evangelism is for you, and what evangelism might look like in the context of a of a Christian faith that's practiced as as advocacy for queer and other marginalized groups. What I what I uh, you know attempt to do in my both my first book and in this book I just follow along in my own life as to what that looks like. Um, is uh, to take that word back, just like we taking we're taking Christianity back in a sense in some of our circles. That word does not equal marketing. That word does not equal imperialism. That word is is has its origins in the Bible. It's the good news. It's you know the news of the angels. You know it's what is good news? Well, the good news is not I've come to take your land and destroy your your people and you know um, no that's not the good news. Um, the good news um, actually, as I say, is what we you know what converted me, um, what continues to convert me. Right. The the good news is this alternative way of looking at reality of the world of everything. Um, that I think is, is you know, our faith, not only our faith, but faith at, at its best. Um, and, you know, again, this is always resistant to imperialism and to empire. This is, this is the faith that stands with the marginalized, um, which is the great, you know, great theme of the biblical lore, you know, liberation from oppression. Um, this, is, this is where you stand. Um, you certainly don't stand with the oppressor. Um, and you certainly don't stand with a marketing machine or the salesperson, right? And you, you, it's not about church membership, you know, it's not about money. Um, so, I mean, this is what has come to mean. And I think that's really sad. I refuse to let them take that word over, just as I think we should refuse to let them define what it is to be Christian. So um, let's take back more of these words um, and let's let's look at their ideology. Let's look at their origins and and you know let's use them again in a new light yeah thank you our central question in, in this series uh, the wake of 2020 has been about the ways that many of our most familiar 
you know, especially political ideas need to be rethought in a quote unquote post-2020 world, um, just given their inability to address historical and structural forms of injustice. We're especially eager to hear your take on these issues, you know, given your longstanding commitment to advocacy um, as you've been describing it here. But I, I want to keep this question broad. Like in, in the last, you know, the last year or so, what are the, have been the things that you've been reflecting on specifically or what have been some of the key you know, conclusions you've drawn or, or learnings that you've, you've arrived at in, in the last short while? Sure. Um, well, certainly my life has shown that, and, and I hope this is a book of hope, <laughs> um, you can win. Like you really can win. You can win against the system. You can save lives. You can do that. Um, I've seen it happen on small scales and large scales over and over again. And I, and I really want to emphasize that. Um, so in the last year, what have we seen? We have seen all the fault lines of imperialism and colonialism and capitalism writ large. I mean, we have seen um, what happens uh, when governments are not there for the well-being of their citizens and uh, don't care if people live or die. It's that stark, right? They just don't care. We also saw on a more positive note that governments, if they want to spend the money, can spend the money. That not having the money is no excuse for an action on any front, whether it be housing, ending poverty, free secondary tuition, pharmacare, dental care. Do your dream list up. Governments can afford it. In fact, they can't afford not to do it. So that is a true economic assessment of what governments can. And I think it's pretty clear to everybody now um, that that's possible for governments to spend money when they really have to. We know this in wartime, and now we've, we, at Whole New Generations, discovered it in North American peacetime, right? So, I mean, those two things, a little bit of good news, and you know, yet the same old bad news, um, we can see that there are resources there that we can use, and we should demand that they be used. Um, like I, for example, on the housing front, um, I, even in my day, I live, you know, I grew up, um, I was on the streets, I got off the streets with what they used to call student welfare, um, that in those days allowed me to rent a basement apartment and feed myself while going to school. I also went to university at a time when I could work part-time, summer jobs, get some grants, a little bursary here, scholarship there, and, and graduate with very little debt. Um, under conservative governments, you know what the difference was? Taxation rates for the wealthy, pure and simple. The wealthy used to pay more, and now they pay way, way less. So these are very simple fixes, really, even under capitalism. Uh, and somehow we've forgotten that this can be this can be possible, you know. And this is not even revolutionary, right? This is just social democracy. Um, so, so again, I think COVID has shown us all of that, or should have or should have. It's also shown us that the, that all these myths that are spun by mainstream media and by political parties um, are what they are, are nonsense, right? That the conservatives are not about, you know, fiscal responsibility, they never have been. They're about siphoning off money for their wealthy friends and large corporations. That's what conservatism is about. That's what the right wing is about. Everything else is icing on that cake. That is the cake. Um, and it's also shown, you know, on the left, if you're going to be a labor party, be a labor party, you know, represent labor and, the, and class interests, represent those who are marginalized. Don't try to be neoliberals. Don't try to play the center. The liberals will do that way better than you can ever do it. Right. So don't do that. And we keep doing that over and over again. 
um, in our labor parties. Uh, and I think there's a huge hunger for a political representation that does not do that, you know? Um, so for example, it was a Catholic uh, professor at seminary that taught me about my own tradition, <laughs> coming out of Protestantism in Canada, um, and talked about the social gospel movement that came out of the prairies. Uh, people like J.S. Woodsworth, people like Tommy Douglas, you know, who brought in Medicare to all of Canada initially, who were, you know, both of them ordained clergy, one a Baptist, one a Methodist, um, but others, um, Smiley was another name of, you know, this was very much the worker priest, or in this case, worker pastor, um, but it came out of the prairies, right? It came out of the starving farmers with no social assistance, no supports, um, and saying that Christians have to be involved there, that they have to be political. Um, it came out of the general strike, you know, um, these incredible moments in Canadian history where the formation of unions um, and interestingly on the formation of unions, like one of the big questions I have coming out of COVID is where are the unions? <laughs> you know, I, I, I totally support our unions and I hate to be critical of them, but was there ever a time for a general strike if not this last year? Uh, public education completely under attack, people risking their lives going to jobs, literally risking their lives on the front lines uh, in workplaces. So anyway, um, so my roots, I learned, are in the social gospel movement, in that resistance is very much, you know, a part of now, I think, global um, Christianity. Um, and that's where we get our, our resistance and our, you know, sustenance from both. Um, and that's so important, you know, that that is absolutely critical. I think there's incredible hunger out there and incredible passion. And, you know, we saw with the kind of crumbling of the Soviet Union that, you know, it's crumbled. It ended with a whimper, not a bang, as T.S. Eliot would say, right? And why? Because underneath all of that superstructure was this incredible organization going on, this incredible resistance, this incredible people not buying it anymore, just not believing in the in the you know the lines anymore that they were getting from government. So anyway, I, I'm very optimistic, as I said, I, and I think the silver lining of COVID has shown us how bad things can get and how how easily we can respond to crises if there's political will. I find it really interesting how what you said there strikes a, a really sharp tone of hope, but it's not a it's not a like cross our fingers and wish for something good to happen hope. It's a hope based on on the realities that COVID has exposed, and as you say, like the visible fact that if there's political will, the money's there. Absolutely. Um, and so so you know as you say, like advocacy works and and laws can change and lives can be saved that way. I I I, I think that's a really helpful reminder, um, especially in these times. And faith is a, is a part of that, right? Like faith is so important in this. Um, as somebody who came from the left as, a, as an atheist into faith, um, I can tell you that it's a pretty lonely fight out there for most on the left, right? And that you're, you feel like you're beating your head against a wall and your head goes and the wall doesn't, right? And then this is the source of a lot of infighting. Like we need sustenance, we need food, we need shelter, and we need community of love and hope that to support us. Um, and that's where, you know, places of faith can be total sites of resistance that that actually buoy people up, that actually help, that actually can, you know, kind of patch you up and send you out, you know, um, that can uh, that can be the place that, you know, if you're hungry, feeds you, if you're homeless, helps to find something, you know, these are the places we need. And, 
and they aren't always you know supplied by the left and they're not always supplied by environmental movements or i wish they were i hope they would be um but they're not always and that allows you to to be in this for the long haul right and what i would say for hope for those intersectional folk who find themselves marginalized in in many ways where do you find hope well again i wandered into the united church of canada in 1988 because they ordained openly gay and lesbian people I wouldn't have walked in otherwise. And then, of course, when I did the first legalized same-sex marriage, the church abandoned me. You know, so I've seen both sides of church, right? Um, and this is most people's experience of church. And so that's why we need to stay, I think, I would argue stay. And again, um, another another Catholic that I've known, that uh, Mary Jo Letty, who I, I would often ask her, why are you staying in the Roman Catholic Church? You know, you can't be ordained, you should be a priest, blah, blah, blah. Um, and she would say, uh, it's my home. It's not their home. It's my home. And I think that, so I mean, I I think of being in the NDP. It's my home. <laughs> Sometimes it's not the leadership's home necessarily. I think of it being in church. It's my home. It's not necessarily the leadership's home. And it's incumbent upon us to make these spaces our homes, to you know not abandon them, um, but to make them our home. And I think we, we are, increasingly we are. And of course, also challenge. And I'll also be very aware of being on the outside, you know, um, walking with the marginalized, you know. Um, it's been a battle. I mean, I always feel like it's a battle to kind of you know, welcome new people into traditional faith spaces who are marginalized and intersectional and to have them really be welcomed, not just be nice to people and have them be listened to, put them in leadership, you know, the same in political movements, right? Um, one of the stories I tell in the book is about being a Trotskyist and how racist and misogynist it was in those days. How we were told that as women, if we were going to protest something, that we should wear dresses and not because we might be seen as dykes. I, I remember that very specifically. So yes, you know, will identity politics alone save us? No, we have to get together across the identity field and be class-based as well. But it is also extremely important. And I think uh, again, um, this is the history of our movements and this is the history of our churches and our places of faith. So we have to be cognizant of that history and co constantly be aware of it and resistant to it. This is why I say, you know, you have to play both. Like you have to be involved politically in the traditional channels of politics, wherever you are. And you also have to be resistant and on the outside looking in at that. The same way we are engaged in church to be in, yes and to also be resistant to what you see happening in your faith institution, be both and, um, you know, you save lives immediately by those actions, but also you look forward to a time when, um, when the conversation will be very different. So, yeah. Oh, thank you so much for that. And what's really resonating with me is, you know, the vision you're, you're, you're offering of a faith community as a community of love and resistance especially given how you may not find that in other, you know, politically oriented gatherings. So I, I think I, I think that's really, really powerful. Uh, absolutely. There was a great uh, piece of graffiti that came out of the uprising of the student movement. I think I think it was from the 60s in, in France. Um, uh, the graffiti basically said in English, be realistic, just do the impossible. You know? <laughs> and, and, and when you find yourself in these, these situations of resistance, I think it feels like that. Right. But it also you can. My story, which is why, you know, I wrote the book, is a story of hope because 
I actually, I did win some stuff, right? I'm here. Like I'm a, I'm a survivor. Like you can survive, you can thrive. Will you get beaten up? Yeah, you will. Um, will it be tough at times? Oh yeah. I document that. Right. Um, but I mean, is it worth it? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, be realistic, just do the impossible, right? I mean, we have limited time on this planet. Why don't we do something, you know, wonderful with it? Um, and why do, don't we do something courageous with it? And, uh, and, and again, to go back to the faith angle here, you know, when we stand before the God of our lives, um, we're not going to stand before the leadership of a political party. We're not going to stand before the government. We're not going to stand, you know, a, against the forces of powers and principalities, you know, imperialism, colonialism, you know, save your soul, like Jesus says, right? Like serve um, source of all love, which we call divine, serve that. Um, it'll never steer you wrong, right? It'll get you in huge amounts of trouble. But yeah, that's where the faith community helps you, right? It patches you up and, and, and loves you at its best, um, feeds you and sends you forth again. I mean, certainly I found that in my political life, that when the going got weird, uh, I thought, okay, I'm here, but I'm not of here. Jesus very much models that, right? I'm here, but yeah, I'm also got a foot somewhere else. I'm not of here. And so I can afford to be critical. I don't have to be afraid. The, the great message, the, the, the quintessential Jesus message is fear not, right? Fear not. And, um, and everything in our system wants us to be afraid. So don't do it. I think your uh, description of faith is critical in the sense of being essential, but also critical as, as critiquing things. It's probably one of the best things that we could have someone say to us on our podcast, Critical Faith. So thank you um, for that. Thank you for everything. I got to say, I'm really looking forward to getting out and getting my hands on the copy of The Queer Evangelist and reading it. Um, so, so thanks so much for being a part of uh, our conversation today. Yeah. Bottom line, I hope it's a story of hope and I hope it's a story of encouragement for resistance. Anyway, this has been fun. Thanks everybody. And that brings us to our final segment, What's Your Pleasure? This is where we get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun. The movies and television shows we're watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. So, Andrew, what's your pleasure? Well, my pleasure for this uh, episode has to do with a sport and game that I intend to play. Mm. Uh, because I, uh, my birthday was on May 9th, and my wife got me a baseball glove. Hmm. for my birthday because you know as you and i have talked on on here uh, uh, many times I'm a fan of watching baseball as you are mm -hmm. um and i kind of figured that you know it'd be fun to get out there and try to do some of the stuff that i've been watching no doubt so um i'm not necessarily going to join a baseball team or anything like that um because that's not really happening these days but i you know we might go and play catch in the park and remind myself what it feels like to catch a baseball i played as a kid but haven't played in decades mm. so that was a fun little gift to get so i'm looking forward to getting out there and tossing the ball around yeah i know i uh before the pandemic i was planning on starting a softball team oh. for like last summer which obviously didn't pan out but uh hopefully i'll be able to conjure up something when this is all over if this is over ever who knows yeah so hopefully i'll be there right with you 
Well, let me know if you ever get a team going, I'll happily join. And I'm probably awful. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. Um, what's your pleasure? My pleasure. So I am operating on a very strange sleep schedule these days. I sleep in and I stay up really late. Um, I think mostly because like I'm an introvert and I live with people and they're home all the time. And so I don't actually have very much like introvert time if I live on their schedule. And so I live on my own schedule. And what that means is that I get really hungry at like 1 a.m. And I love tortilla chips. Just like I'll even just eat them plain. I just like crush those things. So, uh, yeah, uh, tortilla chips are my pleasure. Mm keeping you going at 1am. Yeah. Something's got to keep me going, you know? Yeah. I always find that when, you know, when I'm hungry that late, like my craving is only ever answered by pizza. Yeah. Pizza at night is a uh, glory. That's it for our show this week. Stay with us in the weeks to come as we continue to ask our friends and colleagues to reflect on political life after 2020 in this series. If you're interested in learning more about one of the remote courses ICS is offering this summer, you can visit our website at www.icscanada.edu. And you can also email our registrar, Elizabeth RS, at academic-registrar at icscanada.edu to register or with any questions you might have. If you'd like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can find more information on the website just mentioned. And if anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. You can follow me as at Mark Standish. And you can follow ICS as at INSCHR. Sherry's memoir, The Queer Evangelist, is published by Wilfrid Laurier University Press and is available from Another Story Bookshop and other independent booksellers. Her book, Querying Evangelism, will also be released shortly as an ebook, also from Wilfrid Laurier University Press. You can also find more about Sherry on her website, sherrydenovo.ca. And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, follow along with us on Spotify, or find us on your podcast app of choice. Remember, following and reviewing the podcast helps people find us and keeps us on their radar. Most importantly, tell your friends. Mm-hmm.